Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Job chapter 28. Job chapter 28. If you're a first-time visitor here, or if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible under the chair, under your chair or the chair in front of you. You just take out that brown um, hardback Bible, and you could open it to page 374. If you go to page 374, you'll find Job chapter 28. I'll read the first 11 verses, and then we'll pray. Job 28. Hear then the words of the living and present God. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the ground and copper is smelted from ore. A miner puts an end to the darkness. He probes the deepest recesses for ore. In the gloomy darkness, he cuts a shaft far from human habitation in places unknown to those who walk above ground. Suspended far away from people, the miners swing back and forth. Food may come from the earth, but below the surface, the earth is transformed as by fire. Its rocks are a source of sapphire containing flecks of gold. No bird of prey knows that path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts have never walked on it. No lion has ever prowled over it. The miner strikes the flint and transforms the mountains at their foundations. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eyes spot every treasure. He dams up the streams from flowing so that he may bring to light what is hidden. We'll go to verse 12. But where can wisdom be found? And where is understanding located. Father, we praise you for your word. We ask now that we would be humble and broken in our spirit before you, take away all pride, all self-sufficiency, all over-familiarity with your words that would make us make light of it. We pray that we would tremble at your word that you would instruct us and give us life through your words and show us Jesus Christ, our treasure. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your law and wonderful things in your character and person. And may your Holy Spirit also open our eyes to see sin and brokenness in our lives where we can apply your word to grow. We pray that we would be given the gift of faith and that those who have not yet trusted in Christ would even today repent from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. All of this can only come by you, Father. And so we admit that apart from you, we can do nothing. So we want to abide in your words and have your words and abide in us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. What if you were doing a normal walk, your normal walk slash hike around the neighborhood, around the city, and uh, you go a little bit off the street, we have a bike trail here in, in Bellflower. You go off the street into the spike trail, and, and there's a paved road, and there's unpaved, um, unpaved part of the road as well. And you see an old can there, maybe sticking out of the dirt. Looks like an old, you know, maybe an old paint can or something. But you see it. You've probably seen it several times as you walk by. Um, what would you do if you saw that rusty cylinder sitting off the trail? In Northern California in 2014, ABC News reported that there were um, 
there was a trail like that, and there were people who did walk by over the years. But there was one couple who stopped and checked it out. In the can, they would find gold coins. Uh, they, were, they, would, they would come back with a metal detector and find six more cans of gold coins. And they were U.S. coins from 1847 to 1894, all in mint condition. Uh, they would find 1,427 gold coins in all, worth over $10 million. What would you do if someone told you there were a few gold coins in, the Bellflower, in, in, a, in a Bellflower Trail somewhere? <laughs> what would you do if someone told you that there was someone left it here somewhere? Um, I imagine what we'd be doing instead of work day next Saturday, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's fairly obvious what we do. We'd look for it, right? Imagine all of the people that walked past those cans of gold for years. I mean, this is from 1894. We don't know when it was buried, but, you know, at least for a few decades, different people walking past these rusty, dirty cans or a little bit sticking out of the ground, not knowing that there's at least today $10 million worth of gold coins right there. And that was in Northern California. But you know, it's not obvious when you walk past it that, that it's a value, right? And that's why you walk past it. But some things are obviously valuable. Men have always valued gold and precious stones. I mean, we just read Job 28, 1 through 11, didn't we? Look at it again. Job 28, verse 1, it says that there's a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. People look for gold. They look for silver. And when they find it in the ore, they, they try to separate the dirt from, from the gold and from the silver, from the precious stone. They refine it so they could get as pure a bar of gold or silver as possible. Verse 2, it says that it's taken from the ground and copper smelted from, from ore. A miner puts end to the darkness. He probes the deepest recesses for ore in the gloomy darkness. Now, I'm claustrophobic just in general. To be a miner, it just it would scare me you know, to think about, especially mining in those days. I watched a video of modern-day mining in uh, Nevada where there's a gold mine, and it's like a two-mile trip down underground, but it's a huge, you know, they drive trucks in and out of this two-mile track, going two miles underground. That's, that's crazy to me, um, but having a, enough space to drive a truck, that's a little bit more than, um, than just being claustrophobic. I get scared in an elevator. I don't know if you've ever been to Egypt and went down the pyramids. It's a very small little shaft that you go in. It's, it's not, it's not um, for the faint of heart. But, but think about this day when, when Job was talking about mining. This is not modern-day mining where you're driving trucks back and forth. And you don't have the hard hats with the light bulb. You have what? Torches. <laughs> you're going underground with torches <laughs> in a small hole that, that you, you know, you've made to, to go dig out silver and copper and gold. I mean, when I'm thinking about Job's day, I'm thinking, who, who, why would anyone do that? But, but they do. Why? Because they see that it's a value, Right? They see it's of worth. And they go in the gloomy darkness with torches. In verse 4, it says, He cuts a shaft far from human habitation. No one above ground sees it. It's suspended far away from people, deep in the earth. Food might come from the earth. You could see fruit trees and fruit, fruit on the surface. But gold, silver, copper, precious stones, that's deep down underground. It's below the surface. That's what verses 7 and 8 says. A bird can't see it when it flies. Birds can see a lot of things we don't see, right? The bird's eye view. But they don't see gold. They don't see silver. Lions prowl around the earth. They never prowl over gold. 
Not directly. But what does a miner do in verse 9? Look at verse 9. The miner, he works hard. Not only does he go down there and grab it, he, he strikes the flint and transforms the mountains at their foundations. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eyes spot every what? Treasure. It's something valuable. He dams up streams from flowing so that he may bring to light what is hidden. Man will go to the furthest extent to find gold and silver and precious stones because it's valuable to them. And it is valuable in our world. And so we can understand that. And man will get creative and man will find ways to find out where that stuff is. Now, the problem for us is that it's possible and even probable that we can, like walking past a a rusty cylinder with gold coins in it, we can misidentify what's truly valuable and we could consider it worthless. It's a worthless can of paint, probably, with some dirt on it. And so we could end up missing out on the treasure. It's like just walking past it with what seems like trash to is actually treasure. And, and also vice versa. Sometimes what we, what we see as treasure is actually trash. And so we could misidentify what's truly valuable in this world, what's truly, truly valuable in our lives. And this world is filled with lies and tricks and deception to confuse us in our evaluation, even in the word evaluation, of what is valuable. When you evaluate something, you're checking the value of it, right? That's what evaluation is. And so we get tricked in misevaluating what is truly valuable. And then in the end, we end up missing out on the treasure. That's the problem. So what does God want us to do from Job 28? Here's what God wants us to do. He wants us to identify and discover. So identify and discover the most valuable treasure in the world. And when you do this, when you discover this valuable treasure, it will help you suffer well. And it will help you serve those who are suffering pain in this world. We are in the book of Job. We're sort of taking a, a break from Job and the story. We're going to touch on Job a little bit, his actual story. We've been in for four weeks. We're going to do it at least for one or two more weeks after this. We'll go right back into the story next week. But for this week, Job 28 is sort of like an island unto itself. It is related, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a chapter on wisdom. And so here are two ways we're going to break this down. If we're going to identify and discover the most valuable treasure in the world, we need to do two things. Number one, here's the two points for the sermon. Number one, we need to evaluate the valuable. We need to evaluate the valuable. And then number two, we need to hunt for the treasure. Okay, so evaluate what is valuable and what's not valuable. First, you've got to know the difference. Then when you know what's truly valuable, go treasure hunting. Get the map, look for the X where it marks the spot, and go hunting for the treasure and seek it out. So let's look at those one at a time. Number one, verses 12 through 19, evaluate the valuable. So the key question, again, is in verse 11. So people will look for gold, silver, copper, sapphire, precious stones. But then Job asks this question, verse 12. But where, where can wisdom be found? We know where gold is. Well, we know that's underground. And miners know where gold is. But where can wisdom be found? And where is understanding located? Where do you go to get wisdom and understanding? And then he talks about the value of it for the next few verses here. Verse 13, no man can know its value since it cannot be found in the land of the living. So we can't evaluate it. We don't, we don't know how valuable it is. Verse 14, the ocean depths say it's not in me, while the sea declares I don't have it. So where is it? I mean, the, the, the harder it is to find something and the more rare it is, the more valuable it becomes, right? 
And so this is really valuable. When you get to verse 15, gold cannot be exchanged for it. Silver cannot be weighed out for its price. Wisdom cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. In precious onyx or sapphire, gold and glass do not compare with it. And articles of fine gold cannot be exchanged for it. You can't buy wisdom. You can't buy wisdom. You can't use your money, your savings. You can't use power, respect, influence. You cannot manipulate yourself or manipulate the situation to become wise. There is no unrighteous way or manipulative way where you are in control of gaining wisdom. You are completely dependent on things outside of you to get wisdom. And so you read on in verse 19 or verse 18. Coral and quartz are not worth mentioning. The price of wisdom is what? It's beyond what? Beyond pearls. It's beyond money. You You can't have enough money to buy wisdom. It can't be valued in pure gold. And so it's more valuable than all money. Now, we don't always see it as valuable, right? We don't see it as valuable than than money. Um, And so we need to figure out what is truly valuable. We need to evaluate what is valuable. What does the world value? Some good things, some bad things. Most bad things have a little bit of good in it. But what are are the things the world values? Your family, right? We value our family, and we should. We're we're asking, what what is of ultimate value? Yes, we should value our family. Our family is irreplaceable. You can't replace a family member, Right? But you will be bereaved, ultimately, right? You'll be bereaved by some of your family members, and you'll bereave others of your family members. You'll either die first or die second, but you will die, and they'll die. And if they are your ultimate treasure, you're going to be found empty in the end, if that's your ultimate treasure. So family is what the world values. The world also values health, and health is important, right? We should take care of ourselves. Health is important because through health, we can function and do other things that we want to do. When we lose our health or when our health is failing, we're hindered from doing what we would want to do and what we think maybe as Christians, what God would have us do. And so um, we value health, but we can't ultimately value health because guess what? Our health is going to fail as well, right? Right? Our health will eventually lose our health as well. Hospitals and medicine only prolong the inevitable. Right? They, pu- they pause it. They don't stop it. They don't eliminate unhealth. They, they hold it off for another, another, another year, another few years. But, but they can't ultimately stop decay and death. It's coming. And so, yes, we value health, but it cannot be ultimately valuable. What about your job? God made work. We do have a, a class, Christians in the Workplace, for Sunday school, we invite you to, to come to that class, 9 a.m. If you're not in any of the Sunday school classes, we're talking about the gospel and work and how it, how it works out there. Work is a gift from God. We should value work. Don't you get a sense of, of a job well done? You know, when you finish a hard task and then you're done and you can kind of, you know, wipe your hands and just look at it and be like, wow, I just accomplished something. And it feels good. And it's supposed to feel good. God made it to feel good. Because you reflect God's image in the way you work. And when you accomplish things. And so, yes, of course, we should value work. But at the end of the day, we're, we're not going to be able to work forever, at least not in this earth, right? Not with these bodies. And so we will retire one day. We will be unable to work one day. And so that can't be our ultimate treasure. Many people go into retirement and they have an identity crisis because their identity is found in their job. That was their ultimate treasure. What about financial security? That's something the world treasures, Right? 
That's a good thing. It's good to not have to worry about the cost of things. I like how um, one Christian defined being wealthy. He says wealth or being rich means that when you go out, you just don't worry about the price. It doesn't mean you have to splurge on everything. But you could go to a restaurant and you look at the menu and you just order what you want to order without worrying about the price. Not necessarily going the most expensive or the cheapest. Just whatever you want, you know that you could afford it. Financial security is a good thing. But markets crash, don't they? Investments can go belly up. The housing market has its cycles, right? Thieves break in and steal, someone once said. Jesus, right? Assets decay. And even if you die with a lot of wealth, you still die and leave the wealth to somebody else, right? Do you remember the story Jesus told about the man who he had a, multiple, a multiplicity of crops? His crops started growing exponentially. Instead of using his wealth to give more and share more, what does he do with it? He builds bigger barns to store more for himself and pat himself on the back and just look at his big, um, um, you know, his big amount of wealth that he's amassed. And then a voice from heaven says, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. Then you face judgment. So money cannot be our ultimate treasure. What about influence and control? It is a joy to influence others, right? righteously influence others, not manipulate others. But you know, when you're made in God's image, you're not made by yourself. God did say in Genesis chapter 2, it is not good for man to be what? Alone. Alone. You're made to interact with other people. That's why solitary confinement in prison is so, um, it, it, it's not only just a punishment, it actually plays with, it messes up your psyche. Because you're not supposed to be alone. You're supposed to relate to others. And you're not only supposed to relate to others, you're supposed to influence each other. When Jesus commanded us to make disciples of, of Christ in, in the Great Commission, he didn't command us to just start making disciples. Everyone makes disciples all the time. We're always influencing each other to whatever we're most excited about. You don't have to be a Christian to make disciples. You just need to be excited about something and talk to someone about it. And you're discipling them. You're influencing them. They're learning from you. We are made as relational beings in God's image to influence each other. And that's supposed to be right. That's supposed to be good. We should feel encouragement and joy when we influence other people for their good, right? When people love God more, we help people follow Jesus so that they would experience the joy of helping other people follow Jesus. We should feel joy when we influence them to follow Jesus. And yet, that cannot be our ultimate treasure because there will come a day on this earth where we won't be able to influence people anymore. And that can't be our ultimate identity there either. Friendships are a blessing, but the same thing as family. We're going to bereave or be bereaved with our friendships. I mean, Proverbs says there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and yet we're going to lose our friends or we will be lost to them. So that can't be our ultimate treasure. Our world also values pleasures of this world. We all value pleasures of this world, but they would pervert or distort pleasures to make it sinful and indulge in in sinful pleasures, and even that... The Bible says in, in Hebrews 11, it's a fleeting pleasure. It is pleasurable. Sin is pleasurable. You'd never sin if, you didn't, if it wasn't pleasurable. Sin is pleasurable and it's attractive, but it, there's always a, a, a tail to it that whips you. And the cost is always higher than the benefit. Always. You always lose on that investment. And yet there's some pleasure to it. But for us Christians, we understand that, that um, in the end we reap what we sow. And so we don't want to reap that. But even if you're not a Christian and you indulge and you say, I don't, I don't care about the Bible. I don't care about morals from Christianity. Everyone's morals is morals unto themselves. Yeah, even if you just live for your own pleasures, even then it's still short-lived, right? You're always looking for the next thrill. 
So, so those, those, though many of those things are valuable, they cannot be ultimately valuable. What's more valuable than all of that? According to Job in verse, look at Job chapter 28, verse 12. What is he looking for? Wisdom. Wisdom is more valuable than all of that. Wisdom is more valuable than all of that. And you know, there are many people in the Bible who have misevaluated. They've walked past that rusty can and didn't pick up the treasure of wisdom. Do you remember Judas? What did he choose over wisdom? 30 pieces of silver. You think he's enjoying that deal now? No. Samson, he bypassed wisdom to choose sexually immoral pleasures. Esau, he passed up wisdom for what? A bowl of stew. He was hungry. He was hangry, right? Hungry and angry at the same time. I'm just hungry. I'm hangry. Forget my birthright. Forget the blessing and the, the messianic line. I want a bowl of stew. That's not too wise, right? There's a gold can, I mean, a can right there that you just walk right past. What about Stephen's persecutors? Remember when Stephen in Acts chapter 7 was telling them wisdom, telling them the story of God? As they're, and they get so angry, it says in Acts 7.57, they screamed at the top of their lungs, they covered their ears, and they rushed against him. He's speaking truth, they're screaming at him, they're covering their ears, they don't want to hear it, and they rush and kill Stephen. They didn't choose the wisdom that Stephen's revealing, speaking wisdom. They just scream over him, cover their ears, and kill him. So many have evaluated the valuable, the valuable and they've misevaluated it. They've passed up on wisdom, which is far more precious than all of those things. So let's find out where we will. And I'll talk a little bit more about value here in the second point. But the first point is evaluate the valuable. What do you value in your life? Maybe that's what you should ask yourself before we go to the second point. What do you value in your life? What's the one thing that you're saying, God, I trust you. But if you take away this one thing, I don't know if I can trust you. Or you might even be saying, for sure I won't trust you. If you take this thing away from me, I might curse you. Job 1, Job 2, remember that story? What, what is that thing? We, and we sh- I'm not saying we shouldn't value those things. We just need to value wisdom far more, infinitely more Amen. than our greatest treasures. And they are treasures. My family's a treasure, but wisdom is more valuable. Why though? Okay, so let's go to the second point. So number one, evaluate the valuable. Number two, hunt for the treasure. Now we have identified the treasure. The treasure is wisdom. So now you've got to hunt for wisdom. So we ask the question again in verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from? And where is understanding located? Where will we go? Where does the world go to find wisdom today? If you Google, where is wisdom? I did that yesterday. Where is wisdom? In about 0.34 seconds, you'll get 111,000 results. About 111,000 results. You know what, though? A lot of the, ver- the first pages were like Bible, Bible quotes um, on that. But, but where, where, would, where would you go to find wisdom? Go to Google. Maybe you'll go to your friends, right? But not just any of your friends. Which friends will you go to? My wise friends, right? But you still have to ask the question, how do you know who's wise? What standard are you using to say that someone's a wise friend? You, you need wisdom to know who's wise, so um, going to your wise friends might not be the best solution if you don't know what wisdom is. You might actually go to the wrong friend thinking he's wise when he's actually a fool and then believing his folly and then growing in your foolishness. So friends are maybe not the best answer. What about philosophers? 
I mean, philosophy mean, the word philosophy means love of wisdom. So the philosophers of all people, should they love wisdom. So that's it. Let's just go study philosophy. Well, if any of you have studied philosophy and took a college class in philosophy, you know that there are dozens of philosophies and they're all contradicting each other. So it's still like a needle in a haystack there if any of them are right. So how can we know where, philosophy, or where, where wisdom is? Go to verse 21. It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing and concealed from the birds of the sky. So you can't see it. Verse 22, Abaddon and death say, we've heard news of it with our ears. Even death is personified here. But, but where is it? Death doesn't know. They've heard of it. You can't find it when you walk around. So where's wisdom? Verse 22 gives us the answer. Where's wisdom? Verse 23, I'm sorry. But who understands the way to wisdom? God understands the way to wisdom and he knows its location. He has the map with the X that marks the spot and he knows where wisdom is. Only God knows wisdom and only God knows where it is according to verse 23. Why does he know where it is? Look at verse 24. How do we know that God knows where it is? For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. Well, because God knows everything. So birds can't see it. Miners can't find it. Philosophers don't know where it is. But God knows everything. God sees everything. So therefore, God is the one who knows where wisdom is. He is the source of wisdom. He is your lead, if you will, to find wisdom. And so you need to go to God if you're going to find the treasure of wisdom. Now, we learn a little bit more about wisdom here in verse 25. Look at verse 25. When God fixed the weight of the wind and limited the water by measure, when he established a limit for the rain and a path for the lightning, he considered wisdom and evaluated it. He established it and examined it. Now, this is strange, but this is very important. So I want to take a little bit of time to unpack 25 through 27. It's saying that when God made the what? The universe, right? When God made the world, he established what? Wisdom. So, so verse 27, he considered wisdom, he evaluated it, he established it, and he examined it. When God made the world, so that's everything. Let there be light. God made the, the world, the creation. He made humans who are made in God's image. He made you and I in God's image. He made humans in God's image, male and female, right? He made the male and female. He put them in the Garden of Eden to rule over the rest of creation. So you have the earth, you have the land, you have the skies, you have the water, you have the expanse of the, of the outer space. You have man and woman relating to each other in marriage to spread and fill the earth, and then you have God. So you have three levels of, crea- three levels of existence. You have God, who wasn't created. He's creator. Then you have humans made in his image, male and female. And then you have the rest of creation. God has authority over humans. Humans have authority over the rest of creation. And there's an order to it. God made the world with order. There's no, it's not random chance. Amen. Evolution would lead towards foolishness because you can't know the order of the world if you reject that God created the world. Now, this is not just here in Job. Listen to Proverbs 3, 19 and 20. So Proverbs 3 is talking about the value of wisdom. And in the middle of all of these benefits of what wisdom is, there's these two verses, Proverbs 3, 19 and 20, that almost sound out of place. Listen to it. It sounds just like these verses I just read from Job. It says this. The Lord founded the earth by wisdom and established the heavens, the skies, by understanding. By his knowledge, the watery depths broke open in creation and the clouds dripped with dew. What does that have to do with wisdom? 
Just give me wisdom. Why are you talking about creation and how God made everything? Here's why. Now, let me define wisdom from these verses. Wisdom then is this, at least from these verses. Wisdom is living in this world, living in this created world with a functional knowledge of God's design for everyday situations. Okay? Wisdom is knowing the order of things. If you don't know the world that God made and the design he has, you can't be wise because guess where you live? In whose world? In God's world. It's like if, if we gave you, if, if we went back to Job's time and, gave, and you know, so here comes Lance, he drives up to Job and he parks um, a Honda Pilot, a 2016 Honda Pilot, and then he just leaves. Will Job be wise to work that thing? Lance doesn't say anything, just puts the keys in the glove compartment and just walks away from Job, who lived in 2000 BC. Will Job have the wisdom to follow the design of the car? No. No. He doesn't have the manual. He hasn't had the training. He doesn't understand the design. And when you don't understand the design, you can't use it. You're, You're a fool to using it. Well, everyone lives in this world. And who made this world? God. And he made it with a design. And so his design is how you should live in this world. And when you don't live according to his design, that's foolishness. You, you, you grate against the grain. And so whenever God talks about wisdom, he talks about creation. Because wisdom is not first a salvation issue, it's a creation issue. It's not about being saved, first of all. It's about the fact that God made the world to function in a certain way. And when you live according to it, you flourish in wisdom. Amen. And when you grate against it, you feel that it's disorderly in your heart. You feel disorder here. You feel disorder here. You start to feel disorder in your relationships with people. And you feel disorder in this world. So wisdom is the order of God's world applied to life. And foolishness is disorder. When you don't understand the design, you don't understand the order, or you understand it and you don't live according to it anyways. That's foolishness. Does that make sense? So that's why Job is, is, is bringing in creation. But we go one step further, and we're in our last verse here. We go one step further. And in here, wait, before we get to this verse, here's why it's important for Job. Because there's an order to this world. You reap what you sow. If you do evil, it'll come back to you. And it's not in a karma, godless sense. But in a biblical sense, there's always judgment, right? God is righteous and just. So here's Job's problem. He's suffering. Because he sinned? Did Job, is Job suffering because he sinned? Those of you who've been here for previous weeks. Is that why Job is suffering? No. And yet he's suffering extremely. So it looks like there's no order. What's happening to this world? It's chaos. I'm a righteous man. I'm fearing you. I'm walking in your ways. And yet my 10 children die in the same day. All my wealth is taken away. All my employees and friends have died except four of them. And my wife wants me to curse you. And you're telling me there's order in this world, God? That you create this world with beauty and order and, and that on the seventh day you said it is very good or on the sixth day God said it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good? This is not very good. And so Job is confused. He is a wise man, he thought, but now that he's in this situation of suffering, he doesn't even know, do I even know what wisdom is? Because this doesn't look orderly. This looks very disorderly. And so we get to verse 28. And Job says here, verse 28, he's talking about God who established the world in wisdom and wisdom is relating in this world. Verse 28, he says, he said to mankind, the fear of the Lord is this. Wisdom. So what is wisdom? The what? The fear of? The fear of the Lord. 
And to turn from evil is what? Understanding. understanding. And so understanding and wisdom, same thing. Wisdom and understanding, how to live in this ordered creation that God made. What is the essence of living in this creation that God made as a human being? Fearing the Lord and turning away from? Evil. evil. That's what wisdom is. But before we even think about that, I want to just go to the second word of verse 28. What's the second word in verse 28? Said. Who said? God said. So even before we look at the definition that God gives of wisdom, let's just think about this for a second. We have a God who does what? Speaks. He talks. We have a talking God. We have a speaking God. And if God knows where wisdom is and he speaks, we do well to what? Listen, Listen, right? Praise God that he is not silent. God didn't have to talk to us. He's not required to talk to us. He's not required to speak to us. He's not required to reveal anything to us. But he has. And his revelation to us is a gift. God speaks. God reveals. God is not silent. He has spoken in the past, Hebrews says, through various means, prophets, dreams, visions. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. And then his son has left apostles who have left us the New Testament. And so we have God's word here. And God has revealed himself. God speaks. But what does God say here? Verse 28. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So if we want to grow in wisdom in this world, not just how to use a car, how to use our money, though that's important, how to relate to people, how to relate to non-Christians, how to use our time. If we want to be wise in this world, we need to go to God. And the essence of wisdom, according to God, is the fear of God. So that means that we are to center our lives on God. When I talk about when we talk about fearing God, we're not talking about being scared of God in a way that he's a threat primarily, though God is a threat. We, we're talking about God, fearing God in the sense of, of reverent awe, of the fact that God is not someone you play around with. He's not someone you toy with. God is holy. God is righteous. God is God is just. And God is in complete control of everything. And he has all authority to do whatever he wills, whenever he wants. And no one can stop him. No one can stay his hand. And so we need to fear him and respect him and worship him in reverent awe. Amen. That's, and, and to do that, you have to center your life on God. To, to put God to the side and make God second or third is blasphemous in a sense. Right? That's idolatry. It's the worst thing you can do because if God is central to the universe and central to your life and you put him second, that's a slap in his face. And so we need to center our lives on God. Listen to a few verses about the fear of the Lord here. Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6. It says this, Look, I have taught you statutes and ordinances as Yahweh my God has commanded me, Moses writes, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to possess. Carefully follow them, Moses saying to Israel. Follow these words, for this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples. When they hear about all these statutes, they will say, this nation is great and wise and understanding. This is a great, wise and understanding people because they listen to God's word. That's Deuteronomy 4, 5 and 6. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Psalm 111, verse 10 says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his instructions have good insight. So you're following God's what? Instructions. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 1.9. Um, Proverbs 1.9 says, or 1.7. I have 1.9 in my... Proverbs 1.9 says, or 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
Let me finish the rest of that verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 8.13 says this. Turn to Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs 9. We're going to be in Proverbs for a little bit here. We'll go back and forth, but keep a finger in Proverbs. Look at Proverbs 8.13. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to what? Hate evil. Right? That's just like what, what Job was saying. To turn away from evil is understanding, right? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech, God says. Proverbs 9, go to Proverbs 9, verses 6 through 10. Listen to wisdom here, Proverbs 9, verse 6. Leave inexperience behind, and you will live. Pursue the way of understanding. The one who corrects a mocker will bring dishonor on himself. The one who rebukes a wicked man will get hurt. Don't rebuke a mocker, or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Instruct a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will learn more. So stop there, first of all. What is, what is the author saying here? He's saying that when you rebuke someone, they're going to do one of two reactions. They're either going to receive it or what? Reject it. They're, they'll either thank you for it or they're what? Hate you for it or get mad at you for it, right? A mocker, when you instruct them and you give them wisdom, they'll get mad at you. They'll reject it. But a wise person, when you instruct them, they'll what? They'll receive it and they'll be grateful for it. And we've all been on, I think all of us can say that we've been on the foolish side, right? Haven't we? When someone corrects us and we say, I know. I already know that. You know when you say, I already know that? You're not saying that in humility. That's actually a defense to say, I'm not accountable to what you just said. So when you say, I know, I've thought about this for a little bit, you know, um, in the past. When someone says, I know, I try, try, and even my own heart, when I'm tempted to say, I know. If my wife reminds me of something I know about or if you tell me something that I know, instead of saying, I know, I try to think, thank you for telling me again. I mean, that's what I want to respond by saying. In humility, thank you for reminding me. I need to hear that again because I need to follow the Lord. When you read the Bible, you read things that you already know a lot of times, right? I mean, the book doesn't change from year to year. If you read through it in a year, you're reading the same words again the next year. And so a lot of it you've, you've known, but yet you still need to hear it what? Again. So we shouldn't say, I know, in some sort of deflective, defensive way. And if someone says, I know to you, you know what you should say to them? Here's a little tip in case if you're gospelizing someone. Um, Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians 8 or 2 Corinthians 8. He says, um, knowledge, or, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then he says in the next verse, they know, but they don't know as they ought to know. So if someone says, I know that already. Yeah, but you don't know it as you ought to know it. That's why I'm saying it again. And that can make them even more mad because a mocker will get mad, right? But a wise person, a wise person will receive rebuke. They'll thank you for it. Why? Why? That's crazy. The world doesn't think that way. Who are you to tell me what to do? But what does Proverbs 9 10 say? The next verse. Why would you receive rebuke from people and correction? Because the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Here's why a wise person will receive rebuke. Because it's not about the person they're talking to. It's all about who? God. I fear God. If you're going to be an instrument to tell me what God says, thank you. Because this isn't about me and you. This is about me and God. And a wise person fears God and wants what God has to say to him. doesn't matter who it comes from. He wants God. And so he'll fear God and he'll listen. 
And when it's not, when you lose sight of God and you become an argument between you and your family member, you and your church member, you and your friend, and God's not in the picture, you're already not fearing him. You're ignoring him. Foolishness is already in the middle of that, that, that debate, right? If you ignore God there. And then instruction will not be accepted because God is ignored and he's not feared. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because why is that the beginning, at least in Proverbs? Job is saying something else. It's the beginning of wisdom in Proverbs because when you fear God, that opens yourself up to receive more, more knowledge and wisdom. But when you're not fearing God, you're closed off to wisdom. And that's what foolishness is. It's like someone, when you're dying of starvation, someone's trying to put food in your mouth and you refuse to open your mouth. And you, you get mad at them for putting food in your mouth or putting it near your lips. That's foolish. And when you fear God, you're open to receive. Okay, so, so, fear, so Christians, we should focus on fearing God and abhorring evil in every situation. Now, you could say, wait, PJ, why are you saying wisdom is so valuable? Is wisdom more valuable than God? Is that what we're saying? I mean, is wisdom really the most valuable thing in the world? You're, you're, you're speaking in hyperbole here. Is wisdom, is wisdom more valuable than God? I mean, read Ecclesiastes. He says wisdom is not that great. You know, it was good for a little bit, but it, at the end, it, 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 too is, it too is vanity. He says in, in Ecclesiastes, I think, three or four. So is wisdom really the greatest gift? Well, is it, is it more valuable than God? No. no, okay, obviously not. But why is it so valuable? Because it gives you God. It gives you God ultimately and actually, not just in the life to come, but in the world today, in the everyday. See, when you don't fear God, you don't have wisdom. And when you don't, ha- when you don't fear God, you can't listen to God. And when you don't listen to God, you can't get God. And when you can't get God and enjoy God, you can't have joy in life. Because the essence of wisdom is enjoying God in this world. So when you don't enjoy God in this world, you can't be wise about how you use your time. You can't be wise about how you use your money. You can't be wise about how you converse with people and relate to people. Because you don't fear God. And that's the core and center and the beginning of enjoying God in this world. Because your ultimate treasure is God, not wisdom. But without wisdom, you can't have God. Because you refuse to fear him. Amen. And so, the, it's, it's, fearing God is really a gospel call to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. It's to submit yourself to God and his word. And so we need to, to, to submit to God's word here. Now, one more note here on Job. Um, before we go before we go back to Proverbs and then wrap this up. One more note here on Job. Look at Job 1.1. Does Job understand why he's suffering right now in this story? No. We understand why he's suffering because God and Satan made a deal and they made a bet as far as whether Job would curse God or not. That's why Job is suffering. But does Job know that? Has God told Job that? No. No. But if, if wisdom is fearing the Lord and turning away from evil, what is God saying about Job? Look at Job 1.1. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of perfect integrity who, who did what? Feared God and what? Turn, from, turn away from evil. And then go to chapter 2, verse 3. Now God is speaking here to Satan. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who does what? Fears God and what? Turns away from? So in other words, Job is a what? A wise man. Job is a wise man. Job is wise. And yet he doesn't know everything. So in other words, wisdom is not knowing everything. Wisdom is knowing what God has told you and trusting him. Fearing the Lord in that. 
What does 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 say? All scripture is what? God breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be what? Thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is sufficient for everything God wants you to do. That's the, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Let me tell you about the doctrine of the insufficiency of Scripture. The, doc, the Bible is insufficient to give you everything that God knows. Because only He knows it. The secret things belong to the Lord. And what He's revealed is for us and our children forever so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Everything God wants us to do, He's given us enough here. But the Bible is insufficient. It doesn't tell you everything God knows. It doesn't, it doesn't tell Job that Satan and God made a deal. And the wise man not only knows the sufficiency of Scripture, he knows the insufficiency of Scripture. That God doesn't tell me everything. And he doesn't have to tell me everything. I can still fear him and trust him because what he has told me is enough Amen. for me to endure in hope with unanswered questions. The wise never being answered in this life. But knowing that God is enough, that's a wise person. He trusts not only the sufficiency of Scripture, but even the insufficiency of Scripture. Now, so that's our task. Our task to find the church is to be wise. Simple enough. First Southern Baptist Church family, individual Christians here, be wise, turn away from evil. Piece of cake, right? Let's close in prayer. That's, that's, is that easy, right? Well, um, but, but can you and do you really fear God and turn away from evil all the time? I mean, have you done that this week perfectly? Have you done it comprehensively? How many times have we easily become more afraid of a coworker than God? Fearing a coworker more than God. Or fearing a family member more than God. Or fearing a classmate, a boss, a teacher, a neighbor, a church member. More fearful of what they think of us than what God says. Has that ever happened to you? Or am I the only one who, who gets tempted with, with these things? It's so easy to slip from a fear of God to a fear of man. And then we, when we fear man, we end up tolerating evil. And not turning away from evil. When you fear God, what do you do with evil? You turn away. When you fear man, what do you do? You tolerate evil. You don't deal with it. You don't confront it. You don't correct it. You don't, you don't repent of it. You just let it sit. Because you fear man. Fearing man tolerates evil. Fearing God turns away from evil. And we fail regularly. Don't we? We can't do it. But the good news is there's someone who did. Didn't Jesus fear God more than man? Didn't he turn away from evil? Running. So he didn't run from the cross. He said, let this cup pass from me. But did God say yes or no? God said, no, the cup's not passing from you. You got to go to the cross. And Jesus, instead of running away from the cross and running towards evil, he turns away from evil and runs to the, to the cross in obedience. He feared God more than the Jewish leaders. He feared God more than the Roman soldiers. He feared God more than the nails in his hand. He feared God more than Pilate. And then crucifixion itself. Jesus hated evil so much. He abhorred evil so much. He turned away from evil so much that he died, that he took evil on himself. He hated evil so much that he absorbed it. He took it on himself. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin for us. He hates evil so much, he, took, he takes it on himself. He dies on the cross and takes evil with him. Almost like you're going down the pit and you grab something with you and you take it down with you as you're going down. Jesus hates evil so much, he goes to the cross, and as he's dying, he takes evil with him. And he kills evil on the cross. He kills death on the cross. He kills sin on the cross. That's why John Owen called, um, one of his books is called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Because death died when Christ died. Jesus killed death on the cross. When he rose from the dead, he brought life forevermore. Amen. Death was gone. 
He abhorred evil and he turned away from it by absorbing it and taking it all the way down into the grave, being raised victorious to give life and forgiveness and grace and wisdom to all who will receive it. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the cross is the wisdom of God. In Colossians 2, it says this, verses 2 and 3. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him, in Christ. So because Jesus is our wisdom, we get to be wise. So guess what? Job isn't the only wise person. Look at, let's go to Jeremiah 30. We'll go to Jeremiah 32. Turn to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. This, this verse is so encouraging. This is very encouraging that I have to, you have to read it for yourself. You can't just listen to me say it. Jeremiah 32, verses 40 and 41. Jeremiah 32, 40 and 41 says this. It says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Talking about the new covenant. I will never turn away from doing good to them. That's good news. God will be good to us. And I'll put the fear of me where? In their hearts so that they will never again what? Turn away from me. Is that good news? What is God putting in your heart? The what? Fear of him so that you don't what? Turn away. That's called conversion, right? I mean, he's going to give you faith. He's going to give you, he's going to give you a, a heart of repentance. It even says in 2 Timothy 2 that he grants repentance. He's going to put his fear of, of himself in your heart so that you don't turn away from him. So guess what? Job isn't the only wise man. I'm looking out at Christians here. Now, I understand some of you might not be Christian, but as I look out on Christians, guess what? You're wise. You're a wise man. Not, you're not a wise guy in a, you know, in, a, in a sarcastic sense, but you are a wise person. You're a sage if you're a Christian. To humble yourself and repent and trust in Christ requires wisdom. It requires that God puts the fear of him in your heart. Amen. So if, you, if you're a Christian, you can smile. Because even though you say, man, I can't, I can't be this wise. I keep falling into evil. But good news, God has put the fear of him in your heart. So that you turn away from evil. And you felt it. I know. I've talked to some of you. You, you feel God transforming you. You've seen different decisions you've made. You, you've seen your values changed. Why? Because God put the fear of him in your heart. And you are now turning away from evil and turning to God. You'll never turn away from God if you're a true Christian. And so what do we do? If God put the fear in our hearts, so we say, great, I don't have to pursue it anymore. Is that the answer? No. no. We pursue wisdom with all our might. Because God worked it in us. Proverbs 2, you read Proverbs 2 for homework. But Proverbs 2 says, if you seek for wisdom, like a baby seeks breast milk, you know? If you seek for wisdom, like a miner seeking gold. If you seek for wisdom, like a hungry person who hasn't eaten for days seeking food. If you seek for wisdom with all your heart, God will give it to you. And God already gave it to you. And he'll keep giving it to you as you seek him in his word. You're still in Jeremiah 32, right? Look at verse 37 to 39. Application to the church. Application to the church. What does this mean for us as a church family? If you're a member of First Southern Baptist Church, here's a word for you. Verse 37. I'm about to gather my people from all the lands where I have banished them in my anger, rage, and great wrath, and I will return them to this place and make them live in safety. Look at verse 38. They will be my people and I will be their God. 
And listen to this. Think about our church family when you read this verse. I will give them what? One heart and one way so that for their good and for the good of their descendants after them, they will what? They'll fear him. God doesn't only give fear to you individually. He gives fear to us what? Corporately as a, as a church family. Church family, look around. When you, when you take this prayer list and you pray for one another, think about the names on this list. God has put the fear of him in all of us as a church family. So what should we do? We should do what Colossians 1, 28 and 29 says. We proclaim Christ, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that he powerfully works in me. Church family, here's a challenge too. If you're a member of this church, if you're a member of another church, take this with your church family and take the same challenge. You are a community where God has put the fear of him in the, in the heart of the church family. So what's our job as a church family? Cultivate that fear. Proclaim Christ to each other. What do we call that here? We call that gospelizing each other. Gospelize each other. Tell each other about Christ. Rebuke each other. Restore each other. Confront each other. Correct each other. Encourage each other. Commend each other. Point out evidences of grace in each other's lives. Let us cultivate a fear of God, not just for our own lives, but as a church family, so that when non-Christians step in here, and when other people interact with us, they see that this people fears God. There's something different about us. And it's not because we're better than others. It's because God puts the fear of him in the hearts of church families. And we cultivate it. So let's cultivate that together. If you're not a Christian here today, let me just close by saying, um, God is calling you. God is actually inviting you to have wisdom today. He's telling you that he made you. He made this world and he made you to enjoy him in this world. Our problem is that we have disorder, not from the outside. You know where the disorder comes from? It comes from us. We're the problem. I'm the problem. That disorder and sin and rebellion against God comes from inside of us. And when we do that in the world, we introduce disorder in our lives and in our relationships and in this world. And the penalty of that, the wages of sin is death. But God gave his son, Jesus Christ, like we said, to die on the cross for your sins and rise from the dead so that if you turn away from your sins, if you fear God, and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. He will give you forgiveness and life, his spirit, and even wisdom that will begin to transform your life. And God is inviting you this morning. If you're not a Christian, I'm inviting you. God is inviting you right now to call on him to save you. If you grew up in a Christian home and you say, I'm a Christian because my parents are Christian. No, you're not. That's not how it works. I'm half Christian, half Buddhist because my mom's Christian, my dad's Buddhist. So I'm half, it's not, it doesn't work like that. It's not ethnicity. If you're, going to, if you're going to know God and know wisdom, you need to trust in Jesus Christ and repent from your sins. Don't trust in your good works. Don't trust in your religion. Don't trust in your church, even this church. But trust in Christ alone and receive the gift of eternal life. If you will, if you will, then just like Job, you'll have the wisdom in suffering. Not the answers. You'll have God. And God will be enough. So, my closing call to action is go to God for wisdom, which is the treasure beyond all measure, so that you can know peace in this cursed and suffering world. If you do, if you don't go to God, you're going to strengthen your delusion and foolishness. You're going to keep passing by cans of gold without ever picking it up. And you're going to live a life of regret looking back on why you never picked up those cans. But if you do, if you come to God and you call on Him to save you, and you come and you continue to say, I'm going to this day, today, starting today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue the fear of God. I'm going to listen to his word. I'm going to be reading his word and pursuing him with my church family. If you do that, you'll please God in your adversity. And that will lead to your infinite 
infinitely increasing satisfaction in God in the new heavens and the new earth when Christ comes again. And your enduring pain in this world like Job endured will not be forgotten. It will be rewarded. Your suffering is not meaningless, brothers and sisters. Your pain, your trials, the difficulties in your life are not meaningless. As you endure and fear God, God remembers it. And you will be rewarded. And you'll be glad that God got you through. So don't underestimate the value of wisdom. You cannot overestimate or exaggerate its value. But you can walk right past it. You don't have to stumble onto $10 million today in Northern California. God is calling you to receive a treasure far worth far more than $10 million. The question is, will you value it? Will you evaluate what's valuable to the point where you're going to hunt for the treasure? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, who is wisdom. We thank you that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. We thank you that we don't have to guess who he is because he came down to earth. He lived the life we should have lived. He died on the cross and rose from the dead. He left his word and his apostles and his spirit to teach us that we might know him and find him and enjoy him. Not just by ourselves. You've even given us a church family that we might enjoy Christ together, that we might cultivate a fear of you together, that we might gospelize one another and become an increasing family where we fear you together and turn away from evil. God, we pray that you would help us to see what is truly valuable, that we would hunt for your treasure, the treasure of wisdom, that we might find you. We pray that we would fear you and turn away from evil rather than fear men and tolerate evil. And when we turn away from evil and when we confront evil and correct evil, give us humble spirits, not self-righteous, smug spirits that look down on others, but a humble, I'm a sinner too. And all I can say is it's your grace that changed us. So Father, give us that spirit here in this church. You're doing it. It's a wonderful thing you're doing in our church family. Continue to do it. We pray for our visitors, our non-Christian visitors, our Christian visitors, that you'd encourage them, that you would lead them to you, and that they too would grow in wisdom this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.